Hi, I'm Yves Figui. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss what Canadians ought to be thinking about in designing a legal regime to govern privacy issues arising out of the use of artificial intelligence. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. We're recording this on September 1st, 2022, and my guest today is Patricia Cosim, Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner since 2020. Patricia Cosim began her career in Montreal at Heenan Blakey, practicing in health law, privacy law, and civil litigation, among other things. She has worked at Genome Canada and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, where she developed national strategies for addressing legal, ethical, and social implications of science and technology. And she served over a decade as Senior General Counsel at the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada and has, in that capacity, advised Parliament on privacy implications of legislative bills of various kinds. Just before her appointment to lead the IPC in Ontario, she was counsel at Osler's in their Privacy and Data Management Department. She is also the host of the Info Matters podcast, a podcast about people, privacy, and access to information. Thank you for joining us, Patricia Cosim. Thank you so much, Eve, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about these issues. I thought we could start with the recent blog post you wrote on the IPC website. Uh, you noted that one of the rare times uh, you'd felt fatalistic about our future as a human race was after reading Homo Deus Yuval Noah Hariri's book on account, I think, of his warnings about our need to brace ourselves for the oncoming revolution where information technology meets biotechnology. And so, you know, before we get to questions about the regulatory environment that we ought to be building around artificial intelligence, I'm wondering what is it that you fear the most about AI from a privacy standpoint? And can you give us a preview of of the privacy issues that you see emerging? Sure. And thank you for that question, because, you know, it, it is helpful to start really from the fundamentals of what this new technology or these new class, this new class of technologies represents for us as a human race. And to be really candid, Eve, what I worry about the most is the loss of our human agency, the loss of our humanity and our freedom just to think and act for ourselves. You know, the right to privacy is meant to protect our ability to control personal information about ourselves and who gets access to it, who gets to see it or use it for what purposes. And it's been classically used um, and invoked to protect what we say or do in our homes, our workplaces, our computers, even our whereabouts in public spaces to a certain extent, you know, from the glare of others or state surveillance. But I think most fundamentally, privacy is meant to protect that free internal space in our minds where we as individuals are free to think and develop our identity as humans, to explore different ways of being, and to determine for ourselves the course of our lives. So that's really what I was writing about in my blog on privacy and humanity on the brink, was really this this deep concern that highly powerful, complex AI technologies are now crossing unprecedented boundaries into our minds and really um, affecting our ability to decide for ourselves the kinds of lives you know we want to live and, and I'll give you I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit you know we we've gone from an ability of technologies to detect patterns and correlations in our uh, actions and behaviors to being able to predict 
with near perfect accuracy, I would say, how we act or behave. And now we're entering an era where these technologies are able to influence and nudge us to act in certain ways, often unbeknownst to ourselves. So, you know, I'll give you some examples. Um, We've seen the potential during elections to nudge individuals through social media to vote in certain ways by micro-targeting them with ads and articles based on inferences about their interests, the people um, that they're friends with, their social activities. Uh, We've seen dating apps that play with people's sentiments by suggesting who they may or may not like and rewarding them when they act on those suggestions or lean into those nudges. We've seen uh, algorithms using sociodemographic data to predict you know, who's most able or likely to succeed in school or to repay loans or to commit crimes, which leads to decisions about where to invest or divest our attention and resources. And sometimes, as a result of that, really creates self-fulfilling prophecies. So, you know, as as uh, an, as these technologies develop, an increasing number of individual, commercial, and policy decisions we're making are being subtly shaped by these algorithms that nudge us to decide or act in certain ways. And and interestingly, there's the converse. To that as well. There's a, an even greater number of actions we're not taking uh, out of out of hesitancy or fear. Like for instance, you know, you might consider taking off your headscarf um, because you fear the online proctoring system your school uses might consider it to be suspicious, or you might decide not to join in a public protest for fear that you'll be picked up by police body-worn cameras and your face might be recognized through facial recognition software if things go awry or awry. You might not take the time to talk through a challenge with a colleague because you know your uh, workplace monitoring software is monitoring your keystrokes and your productivity that way. You might not research a controversial subject or topic or use a search term because you fear being profiled in a certain way or flagged as a potential risk. And believe me, I have felt some of those hesitancies. So it's it's a very real impact, I think, uh, on both how we act, but also how we choose in some cases not to act. So those are the kinds of infringements on human freedoms and autonomy that I really worry about. I think, uh, I think we've all, well, I mean, I've certainly felt that impact too. We, we often, I think, think of privacy as an individual right, uh, you know, my data, my personal information, but its use and deployment by various actors in the information age that we live in also raises broader societal questions. I mean, there's a collective element to privacy that we need to think about too, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, uh, there's, uh, to answer your question, I, I think, you know, the broader societal reflection is uh, really a, about a deeper reckoning of how we've chosen and how we're handling personal information, which I think calls into question our whole renegotiation of our social contract to set new boundaries around what we as a society consider to be appropriate and acceptable. So, you know, AI systems 
can encompass a whole family of computing technologies. And they do it with huge volumes of data at a scale and you know, with levels of efficiency we've never seen before. And many of the data used may or may not involve personal information in the classical sense. So, for example, in the AI community, it's become commonplace uh, for developers to use publicly available information from the internet as training data for their algorithms, you know, on the assumption that people don't have privacy interests in publicly available information. In an online context, you know, people, um, organizations can tailor experiences and target messages to people without having direct access to their personal information. Now, the classic example of that is, you know, our data brokers who have collected vast quantities of web browsing and behavioral data and use algorithms to cluster users into demographic and interest groups and then sell this profile information to businesses. Uh, depending on what they're selling, without necessarily knowing or even caring who are the specific individuals who make up the groups. So the the challenge today is that I think, you know, governing or regulating privacy is concerned almost exclusively, in fact, exclusively with personal information. And generally speaking, that means personal information about specific identifiable individuals. But the underlying premise here is, you know, if it's not identifiable or specific, then it doesn't pose a a privacy risk. The challenge, of course, we're facing now is that, you know, identifiability is not as clear cut um, in an era when algorithms can mine data sets and identify patterns in what might at first seem to be benign information, but over time, you know, as you link more and more data sets together and um, over time, especially, you can lead to identifying individuals. And, And the notion of personal information as being specific to an individual also seems to fall short in an era of AI as well. For example, when when data are mined or aggregated at a group level and decisions are made about individuals within those groups based on general inferences that they share, you know, similar traits that can potentially lead to to discriminatory harms, or at least that very uneasy, uncomfortable, creepy feeling of being surveilled or invaded. And I'll give you an example. And this was a case that came up almost 15 years ago, a complaint before the federal uh, privacy commissioner. This was much before AI was being used as pervasively as it is today. And it involved a privacy complaint made against a direct marketing company that was combining information from a variety of sources, including publicly available phone book data and basic sociodemographic information drawn from, you know, neighborhood level census data made available by StatsCan. And by combining this information, the company was able to create profiles of consumers and make inferences about their purchasing interests, given their likely income, marital or family status, language, home ownership based on the neighborhood they lived in. But also, they were drawing inferences about consumers' likely culture, ethnicity, or religion based on the origins of their last names. And ultimately, they were selling these customer profiles to companies, you know, looking to better tailor or mail or personalize their mailing marketing efforts. At the time, the complaint was dismissed because 
The information was found not to be personal information within the meaning of the law. And, you know, that decision has for almost 15 years always stuck in my craw because even though the company's practices were not illegal, there was something so fundamentally offensive about what they were doing, particularly when I think of some marketers making inferences, rightly or wrongly, about my own income level, my family status, my ethnicity, my religion, my language. Now, that was almost, as I said, you know, uh, 15 years ago, and it involved a pretty straightforward form of manual data processing we could understand. Imagine how much more invasive these practices have evolved since, particularly with the increased use of behavioral advertising and AI. Now that we're about to put this model on steroids, how do we need to go about evaluating the effect of artificial intelligence on privacy? We've got to do it beyond traditional confines of a privacy regulatory framework that looks at personal information as being identifiable and specific to an individual. I think we have to increasingly take a much broader human rights approach um, that encompasses privacy, but uh, is is broader in in its scope in protecting fundamental human rights. And I would say, you know, privacy is a fundamental human right. It's been recognized under Section 7 and 8 of our Canadian Charter and Section 7 of the Quebec Charter. And, you know, it is been recognized as a necessary precondition for the exercise of other human rights. You know, we talked about the right to autonomy, dignity and integrity of the person, the right to be protected from state surveillance, even the right to equality insofar as personal information about you is collected, used or disclosed and made and used to make inferences about you um, based on traits you share with other identified groups. I mean, that goes to the core of the right to equality. So that that's the broader framework I think we need to uh, approach these questions with. So th- this kind of brings us a little bit to, you know, the privacy legislation that we have now in this country. And I realize that there are some legislative efforts underway to modernize those. But, you know, essentially, our privacy legislation in Canada is principle-based. It's designed to be flexible to help foster online commerce. My question is to you is, like, is it possible to continue on that path if we're to take a broader human rights approach to privacy and AI? And or I guess another way of asking the question is, is our privacy regime conceived as it is? Uh, is it underprotective of our privacy values as a society, or have we even thought about that enough? And you know, how does the whole artificial intelligence piece again of this puzzle fit into this? That's a great question. And you know, privacy, in a sense, I'd say, is both overprotected and underprotected. It's overprotected in the sense that there are dozens of federal, provincial, and territorial statutes across all different sectors that protect different aspects of the right to privacy. And that's just the nature and the result and of, our, of our constitutional makeup uh, in Canada. But it's also uh, quite, I'd say, underprotective in that it really does leave uh, big glaring gaps uh, of, of areas of activity and sectors that are completely unprotected. So, you know, you asked earlier about, you know, the fundamental human rights underlying 
many of these issues. And if we were to take a broader human rights approach to protecting privacy in an age of AI, there there needs to be a fundamental floor of statutory protection across all sectors. I mean, if it's truly a human right and treated as such, then we have to you know, respect that right across all aspects of human lives. And it's deeply concerning f- for me, for example, that you know, individual Ontarians uh, have privacy protection as consumers of businesses, but even within Canada's largest province, they're not protected if they're among the 4 million or so employees of those same businesses. They have, you know, uh, Ontarians have privacy protections in their dealings with commercial companies, but not if they're dealing with one of 58,000 not-for-profit organizations in the province. They have privacy protections as citizens vis-a-vis their governments and public institutions, but not vis-a-vis political parties that collect, use, and disclose vast amounts of their personal information. So if we were really to take a human rights approach, we need to close those glaring gaps and provide everyone uh, with a minimum level of protection across all sectors of uh, society. Sometimes I feel that we don't necessarily have an honest enough conversation, though. Although, you know, it is coming about, you know, that you, you mentioned the word reckoning, and, and there does seem to be a reckoning of sorts lately that perhaps privacy isn't just some commodity that we as individuals agree to let others use in exchange for services they render you know, online, whether it's Facebook or Google or whatnot, services which are free. But I think we're coming to this understanding that you know our data and who controls the data and uses the data, it's really about people's interests, corporate interests, the government's interests, a lot of time consumer interests to a certain extent, but it's a form of exercise of power over human behavior, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really, um, really good uh, and powerful observation in itself. And, you know, there, there are basically, you know, the technologies that make it make up AI systems or the class of technologies are basically the same across all those different, you know, s- sectors or areas of activity. Um, and uh, if you think of all the interested users in AI systems and technologies, governments, public institutions, health sector, commercial sector. I mean, there are as many users interested in in AI systems and the power of AI as there are applications of the technology. And that's, I think, a really important observation when we think about how we um, go about regulating this area. Because the same systems designed, for instance, to profile consumers based on inferred traits or interests or behaviors you know, suggest products or services that they might like or even prompt them to subliminally buy them are also used to influence other decisions and actions as well. And I'll, I'll go through a few examples. You know, some individuals, and I hear this a, a lot, is, you know, they, they don't mind getting served more relevant ads and having their purchase decisions aided or accelerated by AI or algorithms that have gotten to know them better, you know. The classic example is a young bachelor who might be annoyed with diaper ads and much more interested in the convenience of near real-time ads related to their desire to buy shave aftershave lotion or sports cards. You know, that's a typical example. On the other hand, you know, 
Others might take real offense when those same commercial pressures come to bear on young girls, particularly those who are labeled or profiled by algorithms as being self-conscious, anxious, or depressed, you know, and, and um, nudging them to buy certain makeup products or more invasively now, undergo certain surgical procedures to make them Instagram worthy. And you'll recall here, you know, the testimony of Francis Haugen, um, who's become the, you know, known as the Facebook whistleblower. There are are policymakers um, as one class of users of these systems who see the public good benefits of using these technologies, for example, to promote and influence healthy lifestyle behaviors or to inform, you know, their own resource allocation or deployment decisions to even out disparities among marginalized communities or responses in the events of emergencies. You know, um, users might see the immense conveniences and benefits of free online services, as you said, geolocation mapping services or translation services, and they might appreciate, you know, the convenience of language models predicting the next word in a text message that helps expedite communications, but not when the same models being used by a mental, you know, for a mental health chatbox, chatbot, for example. So, you know, others might take offense when um, we're using these technologies to play with our democratic right to vote or make decisions about who is loan or insurance worthy. My, my point is that while the technology itself might be neutral, its different applications are, are certainly not. And ultimately, when we think about regulating these um, technologies, we have to be mindful of their context and their different levels of risk and govern them accordingly through risk-based governance frameworks that define thresholds of risk um, based on clear types of harm, looking at both the severity and likelihood of those harms occurring. Stringency of rules need to be commensurate with that level of risk. Uh, even if that means prohibiting certain high-risk applications altogether. And I think that should be part of the conversation. There may be some areas and some applications that we as a society say, no, we don't want to go there. Conversely, I think public benefits need to be taken into consideration as part of the you know, calculus as well um, when counterbalancing certain risks. So those are the kinds of, I think, considerations when you really pack down or break down um, AI systems, you really need to look at them contextually and take a risk-based approach. That's certainly what the EU have has done. Um, that's what the uh, Federal Artificial Intelligence Act seems to want to do uh, through a risk-based approach, although many of the details have been left to regulations. In Ontario, there are instances of uh, risk-based frameworks for governing AI. The Toronto Police Services Board, for instance, recently developed a policy to govern its use of, um, or the services use of AI, and, and we had input into that consultation. So in some, um, I, I think that broader context uh, of risks, harms in different context, in different applications really need to, needs to be carefully considered and differentiated. Yes. And we certainly don't want to be foisting uh, unnecessary amounts of bad aftershave lotion onto the world. So, so, 
So that, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that should be one motivation right there. But you were talking a little bit about the legislative environment that seems to be uh, coming out now. So by way of background for our listeners in June, the industry minister, François-Philippe Champagne, introduced Canada's privacy reform bill, Bill C-27, uh, which also contains the Artificial Intelligence and Data Act, which would be, a, I think, the first legislative attempt, if you will, by the government to birth a regulatory framework around the use of AI technologies in Canada. Although here in Quebec, we've updated data protection laws to include new provisions on automated decision-making. And uh, as you know very well, the government of Ontario is working on developing a trustworthy AI framework in your province. But before we get to that, you also mentioned the EU Act, Artificial Intelligence Act. What's your assessment of, of because they, they seem to be leading the way, and we seem to be trying to mimic them or catch up to them a little bit like we did with the, uh, the GDPR. What's your assessment of their uh, solution, which seems to focus on those risks that you were describing? Does it work? Is it a promising template for us? Well, uh, it's, I think it's uh, too early and far be it from me to say whether it's, it's working or not, but it's certainly an important model. And in particular, uh, as I said before, this risk-based approach that looks to, you know, apply um, regulatory measures and rules commensurate with the level of risk and defined by certain thresholds. I think that model uh, is a very interesting one and one that we should uh, certainly take take note of. To the extent, though, that there is maybe a conversation about artificial intelligence and you know risk based uh, a risk based approach among policymakers and elected lawmakers, you know, what, what what are they missing, uh, or what do you, what would you urge them to think about a little bit more? Well. I think what's missing fundamentally from the conversation, or at least what I fear is missing, is really a discussion and examination, as I said before, of the social license. And that's a big missing piece. I'm concerned that, you know, on the ground, the pressure to rapidly innovate and digitally transform certain sectors of our economy, including the public sector, might lead to policymakers, legislators investing in AI technologies and or you know incentivizing their adoption before really doing the groundwork necessary to ensure that public trust is behind them. Now, some privacy laws, not all, have you know gateway concepts that governments and organizations need to pass through before they can adopt these new kinds of information technologies. Um, sometimes it's the concept of necessity, you know, uh, whether the collection use or disclosure of personal information is necessary to deliver on a certain program or activity or offer a certain product or service. But that's pretty much, you know, it boils down to a technical evidentiary standard of whether, you know, to do X requires Y, for instance. Other times, particularly in private sector privacy laws, there are gateway concepts like reasonableness or appropriateness, which begs the question, what is reasonable or appropriate in accordance with what are clearly changing social mores of our time? Do we have the social license to use AI in you know, X or Y manner and for A or B purposes? 
You know, it's interesting, according to a recent survey by Ipsos, only 23% of Canadians think that the use of AI in products and services will have more benefits than drawbacks. So that doesn't sound like a resounding and universal social license to me. So in light of, you know, the public pressure to innovate, um, tempered by this general distrust of AI, I would say there are two takeaways for policymakers and legislators not to, you know, miss it, as you say. I think, as I said before, we really need to contextualize the question so that people can make more granular evaluations of both the risks and benefits of a specific AI initiative for a specific purpose in a specific context, and, you know, really gauge their level of trust, uh, depending on the answers to those questions. And we need to do a much better job, I think, of consulting and engaging with those members of the public who stand to be most affected by the use of AI, including, you know, marginalized populations um, and those who uh, risk being discriminated by its impacts and uses. And they, they need to have the tools and the information required to meaningfully participate in those consultations and the opportunity as well. So I think it's only then that that we can be better positioned to say whether we've earned that social license to deploy a certain application of AI. And I, I hope that's what policymakers and legislators are thinking. I don't want to get too close to the realm of science fiction here, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to push it a little bit. <laughs> I mean, and you know, you're someone with a, a background in ethics as well. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about this because you know, we talk about, so the social license, and I think some of it comes through this notion of AI safety, this notion that we should be working to ensure that artificial intelligence is deployed in ways that do not harm humanity. And, and you talk about the need to consult people, but, you know, we've seen up until now so many digital products and services that have been built on the advertising model that rewards user engagement while harvesting their personal data. We, we've spoken a little bit about that, but all of this for, for commercial purposes. I don't think anybody would have guessed 20 years ago where that was headed. And, you know, when we bring artificial intelligence into the picture, the question is how much should we be letting that advertising model dictate how we craft our laws, but we should also perhaps be thinking about, you know, the people of the future and how those people will be impacted by the decisions we make in crafting a new regulatory environment, whether it's, uh, whether it mimics a little bit our current data privacy laws, or if it's something entirely different. And uh, I know that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a big a big question for you, but have you any thoughts on that? I think that is a big question. I think the advertising model is clearly a prototype that we can understand in some, to some extent. Um, you know, there is that black box phenomenon that underlies many of these AI systems that we don't fully understand, but we can understand sort of the logic of the advertising model. And, you know, as I, I was alluding to before, that same logic, uh, it, it can be used and applied in a number of different ways, both for good and for ill. And that's where I think we need to make much more discerning choices about the kinds of AI applications that 
we would place on the lower end of the risk spectrum and those that we think and believe as a society, we just don't want to go there. Um, you know, that call into that, that create and cause really serious um, harms or potential harms that call into question our, you know, evolution um, of, of, uh, of our autonomy, our very humanity. And I'm not, I, I agree with you. These are not things of science fiction. These are real possible applications that span a wide uh, spectrum of, you know, um, uh, of outcomes that can either advance humanity or um, take us back or worse yet, take us on a completely undesirable path. And these are, these are, I think, very real questions. I don't like to fear monger, and I certainly don't like to make, you know, um, a bigger deal of things than need to be. But I, I do believe uh, in this area that the technology has the capacity to take us to those places, and we need to make some very, very... Um, serious reflection and serious decisions about where as a society we want to go. So that's, that was actually underlying my concerns and my thoughts and ram, summer ramblings, under, you know, underlying my um, privacy and humanity on the brink blog. And I think you're, you're hitting on some of those sentiments right now. Is transparency a, a way to assuage those concerns? The point of transparent AI being, of course, that we can better explain and properly communicate the outcomes of an AI model. I, I know this is uh, a principle that's being brought to the fore as we are trying to develop these legal frameworks, but I'm wondering if it's feasible to do that, if, if is it even feasible to properly communicate what the outcome of an AI model is? What are the challenges as you see it? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the major challenges that we're encountering time and time again is that the, the process by which an AI system comes to a specific prediction, for example, is not uh, well understood, even by their own developers and operators, and certainly not by the people who, who are impacted uh, by the decisions made by those systems. And, and this is, you know, um, what I referred to earlier and has been called the black box sort of phenomenon. And it can lead to all sorts of downstream challenges. First of all, the public, you know, lack the information they need to properly critique a given use of AI and hold governments and organizations accountable. People who are subject to those AI decisions or automated decisions may have difficulty understanding the rationale behind a decision or action affecting them. And you know, whether or not they've been treated fairly and consistently with others. Our regulators, such as our office or external reviewers, may, you know, just not have access to the necessary insights that we need to audit or evaluate the legality of AI systems, including, you know, assessments of their reasonableness or appropriateness. And I would say there's a number of impediments uh, for organizations to open the kimono, so to speak, uh, first, you know, there are concerns about having to release confidential commercial information. We've heard time and time again, concerns about 
trade secrets that might diminish their competitive edge, you know, or um, their uh, desire to and impetus uh, to innovate. But there are also the technical impediments of uh, not being even able um, to know or anticipate how algorithms will play themselves out due to just lack of insights to control over machines, what machines will learn from training data, sometimes resulting in what we've seen uh, can be very unfortunate outcomes that were never intended. So I'd say transparency in the AI space involves several layers. First, you know, at a very basic level, transparency is about being um, open with what's being done, your intended purposes, including publishing your organizational policies around your information practices. That's at a very basic level. But also transparency in the AI space is about interrogating the systems um, and it's uh, the origins of its training data to evaluate the impacts uh, that certain changes to specific data points can have on the outputs of a system Um, and documenting the test results and making them available for external scrutiny. You know, the Law Commissioner of Ontario, for example, has recommended the creation of a public AI register, which would contain the results of such assessments. And I think that's a a very um, good and sound recommendation. At, At a third level, I think transparency is about explainability making the underlying models used by AI interpretable by reducing their complexity so that um, how they work can be explained to others in human language, you know, and with more or less sophistication, depending on who you're explaining to. Is it vendors or de- and developers? Is it the regulators? Is it users of these technologies? Or is it the general public? And the fourth layer of the onion, so to speak, is about allowing individuals to do something with that information, to challenge the results of automated decisions that have significant impact on their lives. So I think it's important to emphasize that AI transparency isn't a one-size-fits-all issue. It can mean different things to different people. And organizations or institutions really uh, dedicated to transparency need to understand what you know what they need to make transparent and for whom and that might you know involve different things depending on the stakeholders depending on what kinds and sorts of questions they might ask for what purposes and the level of detail they expect to see so we're in a gen- an era i think of very evolved highly evolved transparency that probably makes this among the most fundamental principles Uh, I would say, um, that need to govern AI systems today. I think people's skepticism on that front, though, comes in where, you know, we have a hard enough time, we have a hard enough time introducing plain language into into our laws and regulations, let alone into an algorithm. And the other cause for skepticism is how are the watchdogs going to operate? Will an oversight body really be able to have the resources, time, and whatever it takes to to properly investigate whether companies or various organizations are being transparent? I think the criticism is fair in the sense that critics have said that, you know, for example, privacy commissioners haven't been sufficiently well resourced. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but to play an oversight role in terms of how 
companies are dealing with uh, with people's personal data. Yeah, that that's certainly uh, an issue near and dear to my heart <laughs> and that of uh, many of my <laughs> colleagues, I'm sure, across the country. But, you know, and it does uh, uh, require significant resources. I mean, regulatory oversight over new and emerging technologies generally, let alone uh, AI systems. But then I'd say regulatory oversight has to be commensurate with the level of risk. Not all forms and uses of AI will need the same level of scrutiny, nor will they need you know, upfront um, approvals before uh, their deployment in each and every case. I think a system that's designed to strike a reasonable balance between the anticipated risks and uh, the expectations for oversight and accountability controls uh, really can be designed um, to be practicable. And, um, you know, when, when I say practicable, you know, uh, that doesn't mean uh, that regulatory oversight needs to succumb to, you know, bureaucratic government processes that will slow down or risk stifling innovation altogether uh, before initiatives can even get off the ground, or it doesn't mean having to wait in line for under-resourced regulators or academic ethics research boards, you know, deep in ivory towers of universities to review and approve AI proposals. Um, But on the other hand, you know, when we're dealing with Uh, invasive technologies that can have harmful impacts, I think we do need to invest in robust oversight mechanisms um, needed to protect individuals and groups, just as we do in other dangerous uh, aspects of daily lives, including public road systems, airline safety, food and drug inspections. And I think there are ways we can do that. And that doesn't necessarily all fall on the shoulders of public bodies or regulatory oversight entities. And, you know, there are more innovative external oversight mechanisms that can involve a combination of public and private sector actors who are prepared to come together to develop standards and codes of practice and the related accreditation programs, for instance, to certify third parties out there uh, with the technical know-how and capacity to assess initiatives against those standards and codes in a much more expedient, accessible, and practical way. So I do see a clear opportunity for industry working together, for instance, with a consortium of academia, civil society, not-for-profits, governments, and regulators to develop those standards or codes of practice based on you know what's become a really a growing body of universally recognized ethical principles. And what about citizens? Should citizens have a right to to take their case in front of the courts? Uh, should they have private rights of action to enforce some of these? Absolutely. They should. Um, and there are, in, you know, mechanisms such as private uh, rights of action. Um, and they should always be available. But to be frank, you know, they're not always going to be accessible to the average individual to take on, um, you know, some of these big systems uh, applications. And so I think like in other complex, the high risk regulatory areas in society, we need to have 
complementary mechanisms that help uh, and assist citizens and act on their behalf. And some of these regulatory mechanisms, such as external review bodies that are well, you know, that operate in a credible, legitimate way within a framework of recognized principles, standards, codes of practice that have been certified and accredited, I think can help carry the load and make this a much more practical and feasible way of providing oversight. Perhaps one last question, because you have a very experienced background in uh, privacy issues, obviously, and um, in your current role, I'm wondering, uh, just generally, you know, as as we think about the sorts of information rules that we need to protect us as human beings, as citizens, and as consumers, how hopeful are you that we will succeed? Well, I'm I'm glad you ask me that question to end off the interview, because I want to say for all your listeners that I'm very hopeful. Um, I'm very optimistic. And I think we've done this in other complex areas of, uh, you know, societal activity. And I think we can uh, certainly get a handle on this. Um, and and I, would, I would add, though, Uh, a few things. First of all, I think AI systems, um, you know, can certainly amplify areas of risk and they need to be governed, but AI systems can also be deployed to help us govern, uh, you know, other areas of activity. And so AI can be a friend of regulatory oversight and enforcement. You can think of, or just, you know, a friend of how to how to enhance compliance. Think of machine learning that's used to generate synthetic data, for example, that replicates statistical patterns found in personal data sets, but don't use personal data sets. They use artificial or non-identifiable information as a way of enabling innovation without um, uh, being offside privacy laws. You can think of really useful Uh, AI systems that are designed to detect anomalous patterns on corporate networks that could be indicative of cyber attacks, extremely useful and important to help protect uh, privacy and personal information. And on the transparency side, um, you know, uh, AI systems can uh, help accelerate the processing of exemptions from information that's been the subject of FOI requests, for instance, helping enhance, you know, democratic values of transparency. They can help detect and redact faces from video prior to public release of footage, again, enhancing, you know, the sense of public um, transparency and open data. So I think AI can be a friend of governance as much as it needs to be the subject of governance. And as a subject of governance, I think I'm I'm very hopeful too, because as many as there are, um, you know, principled frameworks burgeoning out there globally around the world, uh, trying to address um, ethical risks and benefits of AI, there's a surprisingly growing convergence around what those principles should be. Of course, there's you know, um, differences around the margins, but there is, I think, a lot of hope 
uh, that we will soon be able to reach a universally accepted global framework that we can all aspire to as ethical principles um, and guardrails around some of this technology. And so I think there's a lot of goodwill um, across around the world, uh, at the international level, among data protection commissioners, at the federal, provincial, territorial level here in Canada, um, around the development of resolutions and guidance, for instance, on police use of facial recognition. Even in Ontario, there's lots of momentum now. Uh, and um, a lot of stakeholders coming to the table to try to develop the framework for trustworthy AI. Um, as you mentioned before, the framework being developed in Ontario. So there's a lot of highly engaged public conversation in the air that's making me very hopeful that we can come together with a solid set of guardrails around the use of AI uh, in society. And, and I look forward to being part of those conversations so that we can develop a governance approach. But one, I think that's really important to take the long view and ensures, as you said, um, that generations from now, our society is one where human dignity and autonomy continue to be respected and protected, but also um, is, is one where our humanity uh, flourishes and uh, that uh, is fundamentally a future we want to set for our future generations to come. Not a dystopic future. No, not at all. Thank you so much, uh, Patricia Cosim, for, for joining us today. Patricia Cosim, Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner. It was great having you on, and what a great conversation. Thank you, Eve. What great questions. Uh, very thoughtful, and, and I've uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Law, one of our CBA podcasts. You can hear this podcast and others on our main CBA channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear us in French, listen to Droit Moderne. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, and suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. Big thank you to our podcast editor, John McGill, for his help in making us sound great. We'll catch you next time.